Welcome to UX Curious, the podcast that explores the fascinating world of UX design across different industries. I'm your host, Christina Lutkan, and here we dive deep into the world of UX with designers who are pushing boundaries in unexpected places. Ready to join me on this adventure? Let's get UX Curious. Today's guest is Mira Marquez. She's been a design leader between video games and drone industry for about 12 years. It's really a pleasure to chat with you today, Mira. Can you start by introducing yourself and sharing a little bit about your background and journey into UX design? I've been a product designer for about 12 years. My career started off actually in the video game industry. I had studied animation in college, and I was really fortunate enough in the game industry to kind of be in the right place at the right time as UI, UX, product design kind of became more of a individual role within the game industry. Early days, it was often a a job that was kind of coupled with being a 3D modeler because game engines didn't have the ability to have 2D images just placed in them to create interfaces. So a lot of interfaces had to actually be built out in 3D. And then as things get better, you know, there's always constant developments that actually separated out into an individual role where their game engines allowed for the ability for you to actually put in a 2D canvas and separate out that UI UX role from the 3D modeler. And that was something that I found out as I was doing early days that I really enjoyed. And I kind of just went with it as that developed and did that for quite a long time. And then the past five years, I have been spending more or less in the drone industry. One of the game studios I had worked at had unfortunately closed down, which is sometimes pretty common in the game industry. And why it's important not to burn any bridges is I had a colleague who was a product designer at a company called Skydio, which is the US's one of the largest manufacturing for drones. And he had reached out to me and the company was just growing to the point where they needed somebody to actually do UI UX as, you know, as a job. And he had reached out to me after hearing about studio closure, came in for an interview and kind of the took off from there. And so the first like three and a half years I was at Skydio, I was one of their first dedicated product designers. And I got a lot, got to make a lot of amazing things. And yeah, that's more or less how I got into the drone industry. And uh, I always loved aviation as a kid, but had terrible eyesight when I was a kid. So (laughs) didn't really think I would be working with things that were flying again as an adult, but it's been really nice to kind of come back to that interest. Is this what initially drew you to the to work in the intersection of UX and robotics? Yeah, I've so I grew up on an Air Force base. Actually, Uh, both my parents were Air Force. I grew up around planes, things that flew. Really loved when I was really really little. I wanted to be an Air Force Thunderbird pilot, but I had terrible eyesight, (laughs) so that definitely did not make that happen. LASIK was not a thing back in the day, so. So I always loved things that flew. I was definitely kind of a nerdy kid. I grew up a lot with like Star Trek and Stargate and was always pretty fascinated by, you know, future technologies, but things that didn't exist yet, but that were rooted in science. And so that was always really, really interesting to me. And I think that interest definitely helped along with the interest in aviation 
So this is a very unique industry. How would you describe the intersection of UX design and robotics to someone unfamiliar with it? Yeah, I think a frame of context, especially for a lot of product designers, UX designers, UI designers, is to always think about the human interaction. And so with robotics, we there, there's still that intersection of A, a human has to create the ro robot, but a human has to tell it what to do. Even if it's an autonomous robot, you still have to do some planning. There's still some form of interaction with a person. And so basically the UX designer is still the translator in a way between the human user and then the robot itself. So one of the things that I really love about working with the robotic space is there's often not really a precedent. And with that, the fact that it is robotics, it's often something that maybe hasn't been created before. So there's often not a precedent on the guidelines or, you know, when you go to research something where there isn't a lot of existing examples of that particular product. So I think that presents some really unique challenges and also uniquely dis distinguishes it from a lot of other fields. Okay, so this is very interesting because also curious about principles and guidelines. So when you don't have the guidelines, how do you come up with them? Yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot of great questions to ask. So working within the robotic space, there's often, or even like autonomous, we'll say autonomous robotics because that's becoming really prevalent. There's kind of three ecosystems that I think about really frequently. One is you have the robot itself, which is often performing a job or a task or has a responsibility to perform some action. Then there is the human who is telling it what to do, who is responsible for that robot and their set of interactions and what information that they need to know. And then the third ecosystem is actually the environment that the robot operates in. So when we think about whether or not it's a drone, it's a self-driving car, or even your Roomba in your house, if you have one, what is the environment it's operating in and who else is in that space? And so asking questions around what are the needs, but what are the considerations for each of those ecosystems? So for the robot itself, you know, is there a way to maintain system status and for the job or task at hand that the human can then observe and say, yes, the robot is doing what I need it to do. Everything's working fine. It's not broken. You know, it's getting through its tasks. But then there's also the aspect of the fact that these, these robots or these vehicles or these products can operate in a very public space. What are the considerations for people who may have never seen it before, have no education on it, or no understanding of these products that you can take as a designer to mitigate, to ensure that these people feel safe or that they don't feel stressed or anxious if they see it in public? So I think there's a, just a lot of questions around being considerate. And, you know, we talk about being a UX designer and empathy is incredibly important to be able to advocate not only for your users, but also to think very empathetic about the spaces that these products are operating in. So especially for robotics that became quite mainstream for the past few years, and you're talking about regulations, 
Are there a lot of regulations that are put in place for them? Or is it something that's still up and coming and people are still kind of deciding, hey, you know, we're, we're going to do this or not? So legally, is it something that's a burning question right now? And are there a lot of laws about it? Or is it just something that's picking up right now in terms of what you can and can't do from a legal point of view? Yeah, absolutely. And it completely depends on the industry. So like we look at, so I'll break it into two big ones, like drones, which operate in the sky and self-driving cars or autonomous cars like Tesla, which operate on the ground. So here in California, when Tesla first rolled out some of the full self-driving enablement for customers, there actually were no regulations around saying, hey, you can't do this. And unfortunately, you know, there were several accidents before kind of the government and before from a legal standpoint that was stepped in to say, hey, actually turn it off. We need to evaluate this further. So that's kind of the definitely the downside with the the regulation side is often government can move a lot slower than what is needed in order to keep up with a very agile environment, you know, tech, autonomy, robotics, like you know, we even look at phones and new stuff comes out every year. So that space is just very agile and changing. And so it takes a lot longer for a government to keep up with evaluating and coming up with recommendations or guidelines when it comes from a regulation side. In the, in the case of the drones, for example, things that are flying in the sky, the FAA has really started to see that drones coming online and being way more woven into our ecosystem as a, as a society they started seeing that years ago, which is great. So if you ever go to the FAA here in the United States, if you ever go to the FAA's website, they actually have a timeline of all the different policies and regulatory guidelines that they introduced from a, a, a legal standpoint. And there's kind of like one here and one there between 2000 and 2015, where there, I think there was like maybe two or three laws or, or recommendations that they introduced. And then as soon as you hit 2016, there is a slew, there are dozens every single year that they've started introducing, whether it's around safety guidelines of flying over people, recommendations for a Part 107 license, which is in the US, the, the commercial drone license that people have to get if they want to fly a drone that they are getting paid money for. So they are introducing and they are evaluating these on a much faster capacity than other spaces within the robotics industry. And so I think it really just depends on who's involved, but also what is that environment for that industry as well. And could you describe a typical day at work in your field? I think it, it depends on where we are in production. If we're on the earlier side where like, in, for example, working on a new drone and a completely new software platform for that, for controlling that drone. It can be interviews. I would say there's lots of meetings throughout the entire process, which sometimes is not the most fun part. But earlier stages, it's often more research, more ideation around creating, you know, what is the look of this? What are the functionalities that we're going to be addressing or the tasks that somebody may need to perform with this product? And what are those workflows? And so often a lot of back and forth with engineering with product managers to make sure that we're eating, we're meeting all of the criteria and things are organized in a, in a desirable fashion. 
Also a lot of work with a hardware department. So in the case where working on, I was fortunate enough to work on several hardware products early days at Skydio. And one of them was our enterprise controller, which is basically like a game, video game controller with a screen. And it's a really robust controller for controlling our drones. And so when I was working on that product, there was a lot of, you know, I'd go downstairs in our office and go over to our hardware department and, okay, look at a new 3D print. Is this where we want the button? Is this where we want, you know, the shape of this to this part of the controller to be? What are the materials being used for the grips on the controller? You know, so there would be a lot of back and forth and collaboration. And then as that would be more early on in production. And then as we get further along, it's often more time spent with our software engineering team, make sure everything's implemented properly. And, you know, there's no bugs, things are in the right place. And then working with our flight test team and our QA team to make sure just everything operates as it should for the, for the user. So not and, necessarily just demanding things, yes, <laughs> but mostly providing the feedback that comes from the user and providing kind of sound suggestions based 100%. on what your experience has been. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Because there's always going to be things, like with hardware departments, they're going to have the expertise in that, pro in like the building process. They're also going to have more knowledge around different types of examples or precedents with those types of products. But they might not be the best at interviewing users, for example, or thinking of all the nuanced situations that the operator might be working in. And so that's where having the UX person come in is you just provide that little bit of additional information or the you ask the questions of like, for example, there was a pretty relevant recommendation that we made for a, the product designers made while working on this enterprise controller, which was one of our big customers was actually going to be the US military it was the army. It was for the army short range reconnaissance program, which is meant to equip units with a reconnaissance drone so they're able to see information up ahead or check for their own safety. And we had this controller that was going to go with these units. And so we, I had, me and the other designer had interviewed a lot of, a lot of sample customers, I guess you could say, or users within all the different branches of the military. And the one thing that we came away with that was really obvious to, to us was the screen needs to have a cover because a lot of these individuals would say, you know, they get the cases that the drone or the equipment would come in. But when they're packing actually for a mission, they take everything out and they throw it in their backpack or they throw it in these molly sacks, which are these attached kind of like Velcroed sacks to their bags, to their, their gear. And so it's not the most childproof environment for these products. And so that was something our controller has a, a, a touchscreen on it. And so seeing that, we were like, oh, we need to ensure this gets covered. Otherwise, it's going to break really, really frequently. And that's not great for the user. So that was something we collected a lot of interviews and we made some high-level recommendations around why this was needed. And then had that presentation and discussion with the hardware team and our executive stakeholders. And they're like, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> So that's where it's like, hey, this is a very valuable recommendation. And they understand that it was also very practical. It felt like, oh, hey, that's actually good. We should know that now. We should figure out how to add that on. So that way the screen doesn't break. 
because then we'd have a lot of really upset customers, but also it affects the long-term functionality of it too on, on our side. Having to replace those types of products would be more expensive if we had to do that more frequently. So adding that robustness was definitely a big recommendation where we're able to step in and help with something that wasn't initially thought of in that space. It was really interesting. I'll add one note on that. The age demographics of people using it was interesting and it was different depending on the industry or the the profession of, in that case. So that controller, for example, the, a lot of the units that we're going to be using it in the military were often aged anywhere from between like 2022 up to like 3032. And so you had this generation that grew up with video games. And they so, were experts by the time they got to it. <laughs> yeah. And, and so that was something we took in consideration when iterating on the form factor of the controller. It was basically kind of like a Nintendo Switch, but had PlayStation controller, like the gripping attached to it. And it was meant to also the button layout, the way things are located was meant to feel somewhat familiar to a video game controller. And that's completely intentional because you want to lower the cognitive load for the user where they don't have to sit there and think about like, oh, what is it I'm pressing again and why, but for it to feel more intuitive for them. Versus we had some folks over in, in public safety who were much older and still had to go through a little bit more training to use the product because they didn't have that initial initial experience or that background kind of that biased experience that that fed into the familiarity with it. So it's also interesting looking at the age demographics and experience backgrounds for people who are using your your product. With advancements in AI, machine learning and other technologies, how do you see the future of UX design in the robotics industry evolving? Yeah, I think a large part of that, to be honest, well, it's it's going to constantly be changing. And I think, you know, these these fields are definitely going to get a lot larger. There's, when it comes to the drone industry, for example, right now, it's going to be, you know, double in size easily in the next, what is this, 2023, in the next like five, six years with all the the, basically the areas that they're able to help out with. I think for UX designers, there's going to be an aspect of actually the questions that they need to ask. So not only learning, working with hardware departments is going to be more prevalent. If you work in robotics, there's going to be a physical product that you have to work with. But I think some of the other questions is also going to be learning to ask if there's any regulations around these products or the spaces that they're operating in or even for the user. So one conversation that's kind of coming up that we are just starting to see a little bit more of is like neural interfaces. So things that interact with your brain and the lack of privacy regulations around that. So, you know, that technology could come up quite quickly and there not actually be enough regulations or guidelines from a legal standpoint around what are the safety aspects for the human being or what are the privacy and security applications for the human being? So I think that's something as a UX designer is when you're working with robotic products is start asking what are kind of the legal parameters that these products are operating in. But then also there may not be enough 
regulation. There may be very little, there may be none, there might be a little bit more. And so as a UX designer asking, okay, what is, what can I do to advocate for the user to be safe, but to be responsible? And I think somewhat ethically and morally just. And so I think those questions, are, those conversations are going to become a lot more prevalent within this space. And that's something as a UX designer, like you have to be comfortable potentially having uncomfortable conversations, but at least bringing those questions up, you know, and it's, you have to help facilitate that conversation. You might not have the answers, but if you're working in a company that has a product impacting a space or environment that there's maybe some questions of saying, hey, like, let's just talk about what could potentially happen. Like, should we design it in a way? Because as a UX designer, you could design something to be quite manipulative and the, the human user not know it. There's that aspect between understanding the psychology and the neuroscience of things a little bit where you can be quite malicious if you really wanted to, or you can be incredibly empathetic and considerate and have a positive impact with how you handle some of the functionality and design of it. So definitely asking questions around the the legal side, I think is going to be a lot more prominent. In the industries that we're in, it's very easy to go both ways, given the amount of circumstances that covers an entire company. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something I've I've been really fortunate to do several like industry conferences and and presentations. Funny enough, most of which were around kind of that intersection of public acceptance and trust. And like, what is a designer, what, as a designer, what should they do to take those items into consideration? And I think that's just a huge extension of it is if you are working on a product that is an emerging technology, please absolutely consider that not everyone is in that bubble of understanding what it does, that education side, but public acceptance and trust is huge. And, you know, if these, these products are operating in a public space, like you do not want to break that trust. So what can you do from a design standpoint to incorporate education into the product, but also what as a company, can you maybe recommend for your customers or have conversations as a company around like the positive impact of these products, as far as like, you know, if there's no regulation around certain things, like what can you do that everyone would feel not only safe with? I think humans generally are are good and want to do good. And so always aiming for the positive impact side is is definitely, I think, a a good sign of a, a, a good UX designer. <laughs> I always advocate there was a I got asked this question actually at one conference. Um, you know, if you know a designer isn't asking you know, these types of questions, you know, like what makes a good designer? I was like, well, if if they're not asking these questions, they might not be the best designer. (laughs) If they're not advocating for asking around safety and and empathy, then I think maybe some questions need to be reevaluated. Yeah, it's all about asking the right questions, right? Right. (laughs) What advice do you have for aspiring UX designers that are really interested in this field? And what do you think, what do they need to have to build a successful career in this field? And what skills should they look up to? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the first questions though to to ask for people is definitely define what is successful to them. I, you know, I I am a true millennial child (laughs) in that 
I grew up thinking, you know, you do your education, you go to school, you go to college, you get a job. And, yeah, we you know, definitely got set up for success, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> Happily ever after, you know. Yeah. So I think defining what does success mean to you, because I, I definitely was somebody who I thought for me, success was essentially climbing the corporate ladder and you keep moving forward. And in fact, that, you know, was not really what success, like, as you get older, I was reevaluating and I was like, no, that that's actually not what's super important. Like, I love the ability, yes, to have a steady paycheck. That is a huge benefit in getting out of the game industry. But I realized the the massive positive impact was more important for me. I I definitely love the the emerging technology space and working with drones and you know all, all of our all of the products I've worked with have high level sense of autonomy with them. And then you know we get into AI side of it. But I realized it was more for me about creating this massive positive impact. And you start kind of building this domino wave of effect of the positive impact across not only communities, but across the globe and kind of to be industry changing. So for me, it was definitely reevaluating what was important, but also the, the flexibility that it gave me. So like things in my life as I've been getting older is I was like, I want to work on things that are really interesting to me, but I wanted to have control, more control over my schedule and the types of projects that I was working on. And then still that stability component of it too. And the impact that I was having or helping to create with what I was doing was more important. So it definitely reshifted a bit as I got older. But I think for others, think of what does success mean for you? Like what do you need in your life? Like what do you want to get out of your job before just diving heads on into everything? And figuring out what does align with the impacts that you want to have. The second part to be successful, I would say a recommended advice is definitely don't burn bridges. Which (laughs) is easy and hard sometimes. A hundred percent. And it's definitely something like the robotics industry is quite small. The aviation industry is quite small and it can be very niche. So don't burn bridges. I think one of the biggest things too is when you're talking to folks, like I think you also see a lot of startups in the robotics space. And so if you come in in a smaller company and you are the only product designer, you're one of two, I think really reiterating to yourself that you, if you are stressed, if you are frustrated with things, when you're interacting with people, take a moment a pause before you respond like try to maintain that level-headedness if you don't know something or you don't know how to respond my favorite answer is to say let me get back to you (laughs) and just say just like own that just be like hey you don't have to say like hey i don't know but just say hey let me get back to you on this with a like like later today on this or, or something just let me get back to you Create that pause in responding so that way you are not reactionary to something that is potentially upsetting to you, frustrating to you, stressing you out. But to maintain that level-headedness and that coolness, take a pause before responding or say you're going to get back to somebody. Because the smaller the company, then there's a lot more not only collaboration, but there's a lot more input between your executives and everyone else who wants to be more of a prominent stakeholder. So try to stay out of that and try to keep a level head. (laughs) So try to keep your cool. But yeah, 
don't burn bridges, take a pause, identify what success means to you, and then also network. (laughs) Thank you so much, Mira. This was really incredible. It's really been such a pleasure to chat with you. It's a very fascinating topic. And I really do wish that this gives an opportunity for people to see and for designers to see the world on the inside. And for everyone who is interested in working in the drone industry and the robotics industry, it's not as scary. It's actually more fascinating and is really answering the hard questions. And it's, I think it's an incredible challenge for every designer to have such an experience and to build for, for the users that you're working with. Yeah, absolutely. And for anyone listening to if you ever have any questions or really want to do a conversation, I'm I'm happy to do so. I recently just started a coaching business and an e-course for product designers getting into the drone industry. But I also just am happy to talk with folks. Like if you have questions, like I I would love to 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 meet you. Reach out on my website, miratalksdesign.com. And I think one of the big big advocates for me is not only getting more designers in into these spaces, but also more women. There's here in the US, the FAA's Part 107 license. Out of all the the licenses issued in like the past year, only 7.9% of them went to women or are held by women, I should say. And so that's definitely something, a general theme for my career is both between the game industry and the drone industry is, is definitely helping women in this space, but also, you know, helping them to develop their voice and the courage to work in this space, I should say. (laughs) But yeah, I'm super excited. Thank you so much, Christina. And I love talking about this topic. And if anyone has any other questions, feel free to reach out to me. Happy to help. That wraps up today's episode of the UX Curious Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. And remember to subscribe for more exciting discussions about UX in various industries. See you next time. And as usual, stay UX curious.